Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio back with our old friend Peter Schiff, president of Euro-Pacific Capital and a well-known commenter on all things financial, economic, uh, and practical and theoretical. Uh, thanks again, of course. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Peter. Always a pleasure to be on with you, Stefan. And I'm I'm glad you're still doing this free domain radio. It's probably one of the best podcasts out there. Well, thank you. So I did some videos on Bernie Sanders, uh, inviting inviting the Bernie Sanders supporters to come into a rational discussion of economics. And um, instead, I got Bernie Sanders supporters. No, I'm just kidding. Some of them <laughs> are actually pretty, pretty good. But there are a couple of myths that are sort of floating around that I think are worth having a discussion about. And you certainly studied this uh, a lot. The first is this, this, you know, if I'm going to paint a mental picture or, or, or an image for, for the listeners, there's a big giant dam, uh, a big, like a big Hoover style giant dam. And that is government regulation. And, and below are like the little people who have their sheep and their children playing in the pastures. This big giant dam of government regulation is holding back the sea of lava called corporate greed and banker greed <laughs> and so on. And this idea, of course, that a lot of people on the left and some people on the right believe was that, you know, in the 90s uh, and in the early 2000s, this this dam was cracked. You know, they took this wrecking ball. They, they took this regulations down. They let unfettered, rampant, eat your grandmother, free market greed run rampant. And that the, you know, the, the, the shadow of the lava cascaded <laughs> down on the sheep and the children and everybody got burned alive. And so now the important thing to do is to rebuild that dam. Uh, of regulation. And um, it's talked about sort of regulation as a whole. They talk about Glass-Steagall, yeah. which is sort of like a magic spell supposed to ward off Fed policies that resulted in the, in the financial doom that we saw. But I wonder if you could talk to uh, people a little bit about this myth how, and, and ways in which they can think about it differently. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there's more than just a couple of myths. I guess a couple is two. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, Sanders campaign is built on a foundation of myths. But that is certainly one of them, uh, that the only thing separating the average American uh, from being completely victimized by greedy corporations is the government. And if it wasn't for the government, you know, we would all be breathing toxic air and, uh, you know, we'd be eating contaminated food and we'd be dying of, of all sorts of diseases. And, you know, all of our products would be defective. And, and, and you know, it, it's just a government that is responsible for quality uh, in, in, in a market economy. And it's actually the complete reverse. Individuals don't need protection from private companies, and all private companies are, are a collection of other individuals uh, that are trying to win your business. They are trying to satisfy your needs and your desires in a more efficient way than their competitors. Everybody is competing in a free market economy to give the consumer the best possible deal, the highest quality at the lowest cost. Government doesn't facilitate that. The market does. Competition does. What happens when government comes in to regulate an industry, often it gets captured by the industry it's regulating, and then the industry uses government power to protect it, and it uses the government to rip off the consumer in ways that never could happen if the if the companies couldn't uh, bring the power of government to be working on their behalf. And the government has convinced uh, the voters that these agencies are there to serve the public, but they're really there to serve the businesses. So there are, of course, there's this myth of deregulation that somehow in the financial markets is this wild west and there's no laws. And sometimes it even sees that the laws of physics dare not apply for a position on Wall Street. Uh, and but the facts seem to be, of course, that regulations have continually gone up 
uh, and that there are, yeah. what, 119 agencies currently regulating all of this? Yeah, in many cases, regulations act as a barrier to entry because the mere cost of complying with all these regulations is so high that it per prevents uh, new entrance into a business. It, it makes it harder uh, for individuals to maybe quit their jobs and start their own company to compete with their boss because the cost of complying the regulations is prohibitively high. And that's great for the boss because it means, okay, I don't have to worry about uh, more competition uh, because people can't afford to start businesses because they can't afford uh, to pay for all the costs. And of course, all the money that governments force businesses to waste on unnecessary regulation just runs up the cost of doing business, ultimately results in higher prices, which are paid for uh, by the consumer. But you know, this whole idea about oh, Glass-Steagall and deregulation, and, and that's why we had a financial crisis. I mean, this is perfect for the government because it allows the government to blame capitalism or the markets for the 08 financial crisis, and it can hold itself out as the solution. Like, all we need is more regulation to prevent this from happening. But the truth is that the financial crisis was not caused by a, uh, a lack of regulation, but by an abundance, an excess of regulation. Yes, it is true that in there, there was the repeal of portions of Glass-Steagall. And people point to that and say, you see, we repealed some regulations and look at the disaster that was created. But what you have to understand is that there were a lot of other elements that weren't repealed. And the fact of the matter is there were some government regulations that were there to simply deter the damage being created by other government regulations. Like one regulation is like a gas pedal and then another regulation is like a brake. And so what we did is we repealed a brake, but we didn't repeal the gas. And so the government regulation created a problem and it was no longer being offset by a counteracting regulation. And what I'm referring to is the government guaranteed all of the bank deposits. And when the government did that, when the government came up and said, hey, uh, you know, if you open up a bank account, don't worry about what the banker does with your money. Don't worry about how much risk the bank is taking. Just put your money in any bank. They're all the same because the government guarantees them all. Right. And so once the government did that, they create a huge moral hazard. See, normally, before you put your hard earned savings in a bank, you want to make darn sure that that bank is safe, that that bank is not taking a lot of excess risk. And even if you yourself are not necessarily smart enough to know the good banks from the bad banks, there would be plenty of companies in the private sector that would rate banks uh, that could let you know, kind of like a consumer reports, just like you know, most of us, you know, we're not auto mechanics, but we can re re read an auto magazine and get an idea which cars are reliable, uh, which cars, you know, are, are you know, are, 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 you know, better mechanically or perform better. Uh, and we can rely on experts. And the same thing would happen in the banking sector, except it doesn't because nobody cares because the government says not to care. Because even if you uh, if you put your money in a bank and it fails, well, don't you know, no harm, no foul. You're going to get all your money back. So when the government did that, they took away all of the free market uh, barriers to risky behavior on the part of banks. And so once they did that, they needed to counteract it. 
So now they had various regulations that controlled what banks can do with their deposits because the free market was no longer going to do the job. So the government was going to do it. Now, over time, some of those government protections that were only necessarily, sorry, because of other government regulations were whittled away. And so there was a, a problem that that helped create. But it wasn't because of the deregulation. It was because they didn't deregulate enough. Had they got rid of all of those regulations and had banks been a true free market, uh, both in profit and risk, and if individual depositors had to be concerned about the health and stability of the institutions in which they entrusted their deposits and had bank executives known that their their customers, uh, you know, they would lose their customers if they were making risky loans, then none of this stuff would have happened. You know, we wouldn't have had all these risky mortgages uh, if it wasn't for the government guaranteeing all of the banks so that no, nobody cared what the banks were doing with their money. Well, and there is this, uh, just to take a brief wind sprint through the Glass-Steagall, of course, in the 1920s, uh, we've talked about this before, the Federal Reserve cranked up the money supply and then cut it by a third, causing a crash. 2% of bank deposits vaporized and everybody freaked out. Now, the Glass-Steagall came in in 1933, I think it was, and the idea behind it, of course, was to separate commercial from investment banking. So people who are investing in the stock market really couldn't take your personal check kind of stuff and vice versa. It was actually brought in by the investment banks uh, who didn't want competition from the regular banks in terms of being able to ha manage stock portfolios mm -hmm. and so on. And it largely weakened in the 60s. Uh, and um, then only one of the four provisions was repealed in the 90s. Uh, and even Barack Obama has said, eh, it wasn't really Glass-Steagall that caused this problem. The vast majority of the companies that hit the rocks in 2007, 2008 weren't even covered by Glass-Steagall. In Canada, there's no such thing as Glass-Steagall, and there wasn't the same kind of housing crash. So there's almost no match between the theory and the practice, which is why, you know, you're kind of dealing with this magic spell of anti-capitalism that is supposed to justify further yes. government action. And of course, the real problem was the Federal Reserve. It was the Federal Reserve's policy of keeping interest rates artificially low. That provided the air for the housing bubble. And it was the moral hazard supplied by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the FHA, all sorts of government entities that encouraged and, and guaranteed the mortgages of non-creditworthy borrowers. So it wasn't the free market that was creating these loans. It was the government that was encouraging and backstopping these loans, and that's the reason that they existed. So all of the fuel for the bubble was supplied by the government, whether at the Fed or directly by the U.S. government. And so the ensuing financial crisis was 100 percent created by the government. And even the fact that, yes, there were private actors in the free market that were part of it, but they only acted the way they did because of government-provided incentives and government-provided uh, you know, backstops or guarantees. So it was the government that perverted uh, private activity and private behavior. Had the government not been there, had the Fed not lowered interest rates to artificially stimulate the economy, had the government not been involved in the housing market, not been, sub not been encouraging banks to lend money recklessly to non-creditworthy uh, minority borrowers simply because uh, politicians wanted to get the votes of the people that were getting the credit. Had the government not done that, there would have been no financial crisis. But then, of course, the government and guys like Bernie Sanders used that financial crisis to tell the voters, you see, look what capitalism did. Look what the free market did. We need the government to protect you. We need more government to make sure it doesn't happen again. And people believe 
that. They think that these bad things happen because of the free market and that the solution is to make sure that we build that government damn stronger so that the free market doesn't do these bad things again. When in fact, we had a great economy or we would have had a great economy, a great, and, but the government came in and, and, and damned it up. And now they want now they want to you know make the damn bigger so that the economy is even weaker. Well, and of course, the mortgage-backed securities were the major way in which these bad loans were sort of cast out into the world to do their damage. And they're not even covered under Glass-Steagall legislation because they don't fall into either of the categories. So the right. idea that Glass-Steagall would have somehow prevented this. Sorry, go ahead. Right. But, and the, but the problem loans were predominantly subprime or they were adjustable rate mortgages. So even they were prime mortgages, but they were adjustable rate. And a lot of these, again, mortgages never would have been originated if it wasn't for uh, Fannie and Freddie, if it wasn't for the Fed. And of course, you know, once the Federal Reserve ignited that housing bubble, and it kind of had a life of its own, it did alter the judgments of many people uh, and that a lot of people believed that this bubble was some legitimate uh, new era in the housing market. And it, you know, it corrupted people's thought processes. There was all sorts of greed uh, that entered into the picture uh, and people were not seeing things that they otherwise would have seen had they not been blinded by the greed. Uh, but all of that started with the Fed. That's why, you know, when when uh, President Obama initially started saying, you know, Wall Street was drunk and he blamed uh, the collapse on the drunken behavior of the Wall Street bankers. And what I was saying back then was, yes, I agree with the president. Wall Street was drunk, but we have to look at who liquored them up. Where did they get all the alcohol that caused them to get so drunk and to act so irrationally? And the bartender was Alan Greenspan. It was the Federal Reserve that liquored everybody up. And it was no surprise to me that people acted the way they did once they were drunk on all that cheap money. But you have to go back to the source and look, why were they drunk and go after that? Don't just say, oh, we need to make changes on Wall Street. Well, if now we have Janet Yellen pouring the same alcohol and Ben Bernanke pouring the same alcohol that Alan Greenspan did, well, everybody is getting drunk again. And all these new regulations aren't going to stop the next financial crisis. Actually, they're going to make it worse. Well, and of course, you have Alan Greenspan, who I'm not sure is halfway between a Bond villain and a villain out of Ayn Rand, going back into Congress after they dragged him out of retirement. Because, of course, in the 90s, Greenspan was saying, oh, the market is self-correcting, it's self-regulating, you don't need all these regulations and so on. And this was publicly promulgated, of course, and everybody waited for the pride that comes before a fall. <laughs> then he was dragged back out of retirement. He, put, uh, he was put in front of Congress and he said, whoa, I guess it's not that self-regulating. I must have been wrong <laughs> and so on. And I mean, I can understand why he'd want to bury the bodies uh, because he knows where they are. But uh, that kind of statement did not exactly help the case of those of us more into the free market. Yeah. And once again, I mean, I look at him as a real traitor to uh, the free market and to what he used to believe in uh, because he doesn't want to admit that he screwed up in that in the actions that he took. So now he's trying to say, well, my mistake was overestimating uh, the free market and overestimating the ability of the market to act. Look, the free market works when it's not corrupted by the Fed. So the free market would have functioned had Alan Greenspan allowed it to. But Alan Greenspan basically prevented the market from functioning by artificially lowering interest rates and keeping them too low for too long. That is what corrupted the free market because we didn't have a free market in money. We didn't have a free market in interest rates. We had a command economy. We had the Federal Reserve dictating that monetary policy and that distorted the free market. And what happened in the financial crisis was the market was trying to fix what the government, what the central bankers had broke. 
And that process involves a lot of pain as you're trying to right all the previous wrongs, just like the pain of you know going into rehab when you're trying to get healthy because you used to be a drug addict, right? And and so it's not the fault of the, the you know the, the rehab that you're going through such a such a tough withdrawal. The problem is that you that you you know you you, you develop this drug habit in the first place, and you know so Greenspan is is being utilized really uh, to try to uh, justify even more government, and rather than admitting his own culpability, he's now trying to blame the problem on the free market and saying, well, I just had all this faith in the free market, and you know I shouldn't have, and this perfect you know this plays right into what the government wants because they want to discredit the free market because that justifies more, more government bigger government. And the ironic consequence is the bigger the government gets, the less of the free market we have, the worse the economy is, the more problems we get. And now the government can say, oh, you see, you know, we need even more government. So it really helps the government. The worse the economy is, the bigger the government gets. And then it's just a self-perpetuating spiral. Now, another criticism that free market economics is undergoing these days, possibly with the resurgence or the advancement of the Bernie Sanders campaign is the uh, the idea that uh, in in free trade internationally, you know, when U.S. workers are kicking around 33 bucks an hour in total labor cost and you've got like a buck 50 out in India and China, that the arbitrage between first world and second or third world countries is so high that the giant sucking sound of all of the manufacturing jobs and labor jobs heading overseas is inevitably the result. And, the, you know, the number of unemployed people in India is bigger than the entire American workforce. So there's no way that enough cheddar sliding downhill is going to fill them up to the point where it raises their wages in a competitive way. Now, this seems plausible. And, you know, when I first read this, I'm like, well, you know, I'm pretty mean to free markets, but I can see. But then as I start to dig into more dollar reserve currency and, of course, uh, a bunch of other factors, what do you think is driving so much of this, uh, the exporting of what used to be the ladder to the middle class for the lower classes in particular, the manufacturing jobs and so on? Well, a lot of it has to do with the regulatory and anti-business climate that permeates the United States. Uh, it is certainly expensive to do business here, uh, not just labor costs. I mean, that's only a part of it, uh, but the regulatory costs uh, and also litigation and the expense involved in trying to avoid litigation. Uh, this is a very hostile environment that has been created here. And so uh, individuals naturally look to escape that hostility. And they look to uh, start businesses and employ people in environments that are lower cost and less risky. And a lot of the reduction in cost comes from regulation, taxation and litigation. Uh, it's not simply, oh, you know, all the jobs are going to go to the countries that have the cheapest labor, because that's not true. And in fact, if you go back to America, you know, in the latter part of the 19th century or the early to mid part of the 20th century, uh, America had very high wages on a global scale, uh, yet we made everything. I mean, we, we produced everything, not only all the things that Americans bought, but all the things that almost everybody else bought. We had huge trade surpluses in manufactured goods. Uh, we produced manufactured goods of all sorts, uh, and we produced the highest quality at the lowest price, despite paying some of the highest wage rates in the world. In fact, uh, Americans, you know, 100 years ago probably enjoyed higher real wages than they do today, certainly after tax, way more because they didn't pay any taxes back then. And on a relative basis, uh, our wages were higher. You know, there are plenty of countries today uh, that have higher wage scales uh, than, than, the, than the United States. 
But also, I think the dollar is overvalued. Uh, and that is also, uh, you know, making these problems worse in it is artificially increasing the cost of production in the United States. Now, the overvalued dollar is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in that it makes life in America better now for people who are earning dollars because those dollars have more value so we can buy more things and we have a higher standard of living. Prices are lower than they otherwise would be because of the artificial strength of the dollar. We get to consume a lot of products that we didn't produce because the world is willing to accept the dollars that we just create out of thin air for the real products that require you know, land, labor, and capital to produce, uh, we get something really for nothing. But the trade-off is that the longer this goes on, the weaker our real economy is, right? Our industrial capacity continues to diminish. Uh, our productive, high-paying jobs continue to go away. And so eventually, when this thing comes crashing down uh, and the dollar comes crashing down, we're going to have to deal with the aftermath of this. And it's going to be we're going to have a collapsed dollar. So we're not going to be able to afford to buy all these products from overseas. But since we no longer have the industrial base, we're not going to be able to produce them ourselves. So we're going to have to you know, make do without things. We're going to have a huge decline in our standard of living until we can reverse the process. But reversing the process is going to require wholesale changes uh, at the government level on regulations and taxes, because we're going to have to save and invest our way out of this hole. Do you think, and I was just reading about how the Chinese are looking to uh, up the convertibility between their currency and the Swiss franc and so on. It seems to me like this uh, overvalued dollar, uh, dollar as a reserve currency, seems to be the something that people are trying to get around, trying to get away from. Do you think that that's happening overseas? Are people looking at alternatives to a sort of a more worldwide currency? I think so. I mean, I think that the dollar as the reserve currency uh, is a, a problem for the global economy. I mean, it's helping America, right? We're the principal beneficiaries as far as the immediate impact on our quality of life. But since there's a, there's a loser, though, that, that makes that possible, Americans get to live beyond their means, right? Americans get to consume things that they didn't produce. But that means somebody else is living beneath their means. Somebody else is producing something and not consuming it. Right. And so other people are sacrificing so that we don't have to so that we can enjoy a, a, a better quality of life. And, and so when the world moves away from the dollar as the reserve currency and goes back to a different uh, monetary system, uh, then America is going to lose that privilege. America is going to lose that advantage. But now other people are no longer going to have to bear that burden. You know, and I keep hearing all the time people say, well, you know, if if the Chinese or other countries, if they can't export to America, who are they going to sell their products to? They're going to buy their products themselves. I mean, people forget that exporting is not a, an ends. It is a means to an ends. What people want are consumer goods. And if you're exporting some of what you produce, you're only doing that so you can import other goods that other people maybe are more efficient at producing than you are. It's about trading uh, for a gain so that you end up with more stuff because you produce the stuff that you produce well and you exchange that for the stuff that other people produce more efficiently than you do. But what happens with America, the world gives us stuff and we don't give them any stuff. We just give them paper. We just print some money. We don't even print it, right? We just create it electronically. And, and so when the world realizes that exporting to America is a waste of resources, it's a waste of labor, it's a waste of material, it's a waste of capital, they should use those resources to produce things that they want, that they need. Their lives will be better. 
You know, and when, you know, the these countries, emerging market economies, when their currencies rise as the dollar falls, then all sorts of products are going to become affordable in those countries, just as they're unaffordable in America. So as Americans have to stop buying stuff because the stuff they want to buy is too expensive, all of a sudden the Chinese are going to start buying stuff that used to be too expensive, but now they can afford it. And it's amazing how so many people think that a collapse in the dollar is going to be bad for the countries that have been supplying us with stuff. And they don't even worry about what it's going to do here in America. Americans rely on that overvalued dollar to survive. Well, and there's a really tragic backstory, I think, to this, this question, which is um, <clears throat> the price of something doesn't matter. It's the value that matters, right? I mean, uh, if I want to make a movie, I can get Brad Pitt. He's like $10 million or $15 million, but people will buy him because he can open a movie. People will go and see it because it's a Brad Pitt movie. The guy behind him, you know, the guy in the background holding up the sign or whatever in the, in the union shot or whatever, he's like five bucks an hour. So the question is, why does anybody bother hiring Brad Pitt when there's a guy behind him you can get for like 0.00001% of the price? And the question to me is, how is it possible that America invests you know, you could pushing a quarter million dollars in every single student. They go through 12 or 13 years of government education and they emerge from that government education, unable to compete with people thousands of miles away who speak different languages. They don't seem to have any of the job skills that would give them the competitive advantage that would allow them to go out and compete equally. Because the fact that American workers paid 33 bucks an hour doesn't mean that they're worse than people paid a buck 50 an hour any more than you know, Brad Pitt with his 10 million is worse than the guy five bucks an hour. How is it possible that the school system has become so degraded that they're pushing people out and they can't compete with anyone? But what do you expect from a government-run enterprise? And remember, the schools are not run for the benefit of the students. They're run for the benefit of the administrators, of the teachers' unions, of, of the politicians. Uh, you know, the students are just, you know, a, you know, part of the process, but, you know, it's, it's not student-oriented, right? I mean, in a private school, it is. But in a public school where the children are forced to go to school and the parents really have no choice, uh, then, you know, what, 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 what they care doesn't even matter. And, and so the schools are really running away to, 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 to keep people out of the labor market. I mean, we waste uh, the formative years. I mean, so many young Americans are in school until they're 23, 24, 25. Some stay in school until they're 28, 30 if they get a few different degrees. But these are the years where they should be learning how to do something. And, you know, there are a lot of kids uh, that, you know, by the time you're in eighth or ninth grade, I mean, you know, you, you know, your parents know, you know, is this kid cut out for academics? I mean, what, what are my kids' talents? And, you know, not everybody is cut out to be a rocket scientist or, you know, you know, and, 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 and people could recognize earlier on that, look, certain kids, you know, you know, learning a trade, Learning how to do something is a lot better than just staying in school and pretending that, you know, you know, you're getting some kind of an education when you're really not. And we're spending a fortune. We're spending a tremendous amount of money uh, on taking kids through this process. And we're doing a disservice to the child uh, because he's growing up uh, without any skills that he could have accumulated. And if he went to college and he took on and he, and he borrowed the money, now not only doesn't he have any marketable skills, but now he has debt. Um, but the cost to society of wasting all these resources 
on 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 all this public education and all the on all these colleges. You know, th this is another example of why you know education is too important to entrust to government. Let the free market. Uh, you know, take over this function. And people say, well, if you know, it's up to the free market, you know, nobody will, you know, if, if, if we can't let the free market do it because nobody will be educated. I mean, so you don't trust parents. I mean, obviously parents are, want to educate their children and, and, and they know their children's limitations. They know their children's uh, strong points and their talents. And if there's a child who really is academically uh, proficient and is a really bright kid, uh, then you know they're going to want that child to go to college, and they're going to you know they're going to pay for it. They're going to guide them. I mean, nobody is going to take uh, better care of their kids than their parents. We don't need the government. I mean, to say that without the government, nobody would be educated. It's like saying, well, without the government, we'd all starve to death. Without the government, we'd all be naked. I mean, we can. We, the free market can satisfy our need for clothing our need for nourishment, our need for housing. It can also satisfy our need for education. And, you know, and people always say, well, you know, it's not fair. You know, if the private sector does it, the rich are going to get better educations than the poor. Well, maybe they eat better food than the poor. They wear nicer clothes than the poor. They, they live in bigger houses. So, yes, they might go to fancier schools. But you know what? So what? Because I bet in a free market education, even if the rich get better educations than the poor, the poor will get better educations than they're getting now. So they're still going to be better off. It's hard to imagine they get worse. And it just while you were talking, uh, Peter, I was just thinking about Ben Carson, uh, because Ben Carson uh, it says that basically he's not said that he got anything from his school environment other than people to punch and stab. But his education was driven by his mother because his mother, uh, even though she herself could not read, would made him and his brother do a two book reports. They said, no TV, two book reports every week, and they had to go ahead and do it. It really came out of the home, despite what was going on in the school that gave him his drive. Yeah, and a lot of these schools now, these government schools, particularly in the inner cities, I mean, no one gives a darn. The parents don't care. The parents have no, uh, you know, really respect. I mean, they're living off of government. I mean, they don't have any work ethic. They didn't, you know, they didn't really even get anything out of their school. And they've got the kids and they're only going to school because the government requires them to go to school. And the kids even resent being there. I mean, the whole environment is toxic. And, and, and the few kids that are there that really want to learn, the environment is so polluted by all the kids that shouldn't be there in the first place that they can't learn. And now you have the teachers having to teach to the lowest common denominator. I mean, the whole thing is a complete disaster and it costs a fortune, you know, and, and all the resources that we waste on the education system, those are resources that could have gone into productive investment so that the kids would actually have jobs and have a higher standard of living. Instead, we squander all the money on worthless educations that they don't learn anything. I mean, how many people have graduated college and are functionally illiterate? And, and yes, there are plenty of college grads who can read and write, but they can't do much else. I mean, a lot of the college grads don't really know much more than people used to know when they graduated elementary school. I mean, probably if you took an elementary school graduate from 1900 and put him against your typical college grad today, not even a high school grad, a guy that graduated sixth grade, I bet sixth graders from 1900 can do better on math and, and, and reading or geography or than, than, than college grads today. Well, Shakespeare only went to school for 12 weeks a year when he was a kid and not for very long. Now, I'd like to dip into politics. I know that you've run for office and I assume that you're circling around the current uh, level of excitement. And I think it's a very exciting election that is coming up in America. I'm like every single cycle. I'm like, maybe I'll take I'll sit this one out. Maybe I'll take a break. But then when you have like Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton versus Ben Carson or Ted Cruz, 
it really does seem like clash of the titans and a giant fork in the road for America. And I can't think of an election in the past that has had such a wide divergence of ideologies as the one that's coming up. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on am I completely out, out to lunch being out of the country or whatever? Or Well, it might depend on the candidates. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, if it's if it's Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is about as far left as we've ever gone. Right. But it still looks like the Democrats are more likely to nominate Hillary Clinton. And I don't know how much further to the left or if she is further to the left than Barack Obama or any one of a number of, you know, we had Hubert Humphrey ran uh, for president or McGovern. I mean, we've had some pretty uh, liberal guys, uh, you know, run for office. Uh, and so I don't know that Hillary is, you know, any, 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 any more radical than they are. But Bernie Sanders clearly to me would probably represent uh, the sharpest turn to the left. Uh, and, you know, and he's not even embarrassed about admitting that he's a socialist. He's trying to maybe redefine it. Well, I'm a European socialist, like somehow that makes it that makes it better. Uh, but, you know, depending on who the Republicans nominate, yes, there could be a sharp uh, difference uh, in, in ideology. Certainly if Rand Paul uh, got the nomination, I mean, he would be a very he'd be very different from what we've had uh, in Republican nominees. But even if uh, if it was a Ted Cruz uh, or even a Carly Fiorini, uh, or, you know, or, or, or maybe even a Rubio. Obviously, these guys talk about limited government. But, you know, I don't know how much different other than Rand. Rand could be a wild card. Trump, I don't know. I mean, Trump, what I like about Trump is he speaks, you know, about a lot of the problems that a lot of candidates ignore. But his solutions are completely wrong. But at least he's identifying serious problems. Now, I don't know whether his solutions are simply what he knows is going to play well at the polls or if he actually believes them. I don't know. I mean, maybe he really knows that those solutions won't work. But if he campaigned on the actual solutions that would work, he wouldn't get the support. So you don't know. I mean, he's kind of a wild card. You know, he might he could be a great president or he could be a horrible one. I don't know. Right. Because you don't really know if he's honest or if he's just saying what he thinks will get him elected. But we know all regular politicians mostly just say what is going to get him elected because that's why they're politicians. So, you know, who knows what they actually think. But if you look at the debates, clearly no candidates are really leveling with the public about the severity of the problems and what it means in the way of sacrifice. Nobody is saying that we're broke and that the government can't keep its promises. Everybody is talking about, I'm going to save Social Security, I'm going to save Medicare. You know, even when Donald Trump talks about repealing Obamacare, he basically wants to replace it with something that sounds just like it. In fact, every Republican candidate wants to replace Obamacare after they repeal it. Why can't they just repeal it? Right. You know, the, the Republicans always want to criticize the Democrats for wanting to give people something for nothing. Well, the Republicans want to give something for nothing, too. It's just a different something. You know, it's not just a government handout. It's maybe, you know, a tax cut. Uh, but it's you know, there's no way to pay for it as far as actual identifiable cuts in government spending. Even when you hear who's it? Um, um, was it um, not Rubio? Ted Cruz. Yeah, I want to I want to get rid of the Department of Education and I want to block grant the money to the states. Well, I mean, how about get rid of the Department of Education and just not spend the money? If we get rid of the department, but then we just give the money to state governments, I mean, why is that a big improvement? 
I mean, so if the federal government just takes takes money from the citizens and then redistributes it to other governments, I mean, well, why is that good? That's not much progress. I mean, could it slightly be better? Yeah, probably. But how about just end the Department of Education and then it's over, right? The government just doesn't send the money. Don't block grant anything to the states because the government is broke. How does the government get the money to block grant it to the states? It's got to go out and borrow it. It's got to go into debt. But again, he's afraid of saying, hey, let's not spend the money. You know, but that's what we have to do. People who were promised benefits from government have to be told that the government is broke and they're not going to get their money. We're not going to uh, bleed uh, millennials dry. We're not going to make 20 and 30 year old kids pay confiscatory levels of taxation so that promises can be kept to their grandparents that they never were even a part of. So people have to you know, be honest and you know, honest with all of our creditors, government people who are going to get government pensions. The money is not there. We are broke. The government spent it. But I still don't see Republicans willing to tell it like it is because they're probably afraid that if they're the messenger of that bad news, the voters are going to shoot them and they're going to just elect uh, somebody else who's, you know, who's not telling the truth. Well, I mean, this is the great challenge of, of the modern democracy. Maybe it's the challenge of all democracies. People will certainly take extraordinary levels of sacrifice if they believe in the moral mission. Of course, if you think of the uh, degrees of, of losses of freedoms and, and the draft and so on that, that occurred during a major war like the Second World War, people will they'll take their food stamps. They'll, you know, not the new food stamp, the food rationing coupon books. So they'll won't the women will give up their stockings and the men will go off to fight because they believe in the moral mission. But of course, to make the moral case that the system has founded because it is continually violating personal and property rights is to really take a bit of a sledgehammer to the base of the current edifice of society. That's a lot for people to swallow. If you can get them to believe in the moral mission, there's an old quote by Nietzsche says, give a man a why he can bear almost any how. But that why seems very tough for politicians yeah. to articulate. And you know, the Republicans still are trying to look for quick fixes, like on immigration, like, oh, the problems, our problems are just based on these immigrants. And if we can only stop the illegal immigrants from coming in, if we only build a wall, then our problems are going to be solved. And look, you know, if you look at the number of immigrants coming to this country, both legally and illegally, and each year as a percentage of our population, it's substantially smaller than the immigrants that were coming here towards the end of the 19th century and in the early decades of the 20th century. And we absorbed those immigrants and it was great. There wasn't any problems. And, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it was Ted Cruz was saying that, oh, these immigrants are driving down our wages and, and, and somehow this is a bad thing. Well, first of all, wages are costs. Right. It's costs of production. And if costs go down, that's a good thing, because everybody who earns wages also buys stuff. And the lower the cost of making stuff, right, the, the, the more you can buy, the lower the price. Look, you know, a lot of people hire illegal immigrants or, you know, to uh, take care of their lawns, right? So they save money. If they had to hire somebody legal, it would cost a fortune or they'd have to do it themselves. What about all the people in, in California, all the working women that have housekeepers or nannies that watch their kids? If it wasn't for the ability to hire illegals, they couldn't hire anybody. The, the, what you would have to pay an American to forego welfare to watch your kid would be so high that most women after taxes couldn't afford it. So there's all these women that have 
jobs that couldn't even afford to take them if it wasn't for uh, the immigrants coming in. The same thing, we have a lot of industries, uh, in, you know, certainly agriculture, that would completely shut down if they didn't have immigrant labor coming in. And of course, there are a lot of higher earning jobs that would disappear if those lower uh, paid jobs weren't here. We'd, we'd have to import even more of our agriculture. You know, so we, we, we don't, it's not a bad thing. I mean, if you have, if you, if you have to take your car to get fixed, you know, do you want the mechanic to charge a lot or a little. If some mechanics are coming in from overseas, then that brings down repair bills. That's a positive. If you've got some tailors coming in, some skilled craftsmen, some plumbers, some electricians, and if that brings down the rates uh, of a plumber or an electrician, is that a bad thing? If you have to call up an electrician and you can get it cheaper? I mean, so the fact that immigrants come and they bring their skills and they compete for you know, and they sell their services to Americans. Says Americans benefit from this. We benefited it from in you know the 1890s, 1900, 1910s, 1920s. People coming in and working and bringing their skills is a net positive. But you've got the fear mongers of the Republican Party saying, "Hey, we got to keep these immigrants out because they're pushing down your wages." That's just not true. Well, the pushback position, if I understand it correctly, goes something like this, which is that uh, if you compare immigration in the 1890s, then you're talking about getting the most motivated and energetic people coming into a free market environment, low taxes, no welfare state, comparing that to sort of the post-1965 era where you have significant welfare state and where there's no expectation for some groups of conformity to the dominant culture. You know, you get a bunch of Germans coming in in the 1890s. By 1930, they're indistinguishable from everybody else who came in. But if you get enough people of um, significantly differing culture, language, ethnicity, and so on, there's less of a integration capacity. And of course, there was a pause in the 20s when immigration oh, yeah. uh, was absorbed and so on. Well, cer certainly, number one, the, the, the problem there is the welfare state. And you don't you don't say, hey, it's not an immigration problem. It's a welfare problem. So dismantle the welfare state. Don't you know hold out a sign that says, come here, we'll give you welfare and food stamps and Obamacare. Get rid of all that, not just for immigrants, but for native born Americans. And let it be known that if you come to America, you come to work. Not, not, not come for a handout. But when the Republicans are talking about immigrants taking our jobs, the ones that are coming and going on welfare aren't taking any jobs. The ones that are actually coming and working, they are making a positive contribution to the U.S. economy. And of course, if we had fewer regulations in the labor market and lower taxes, it would be easier for those workers to make even bigger contributions. It would be easier for them to start businesses. How many small businesses in America have been started by immigrants? You know, go into a lot of these inner cities and a lot of the small businesses are not being started by the native born population. They're being started by immigrants. Well, that's true. They do dispro disproportionately get federal loans for that purpose, which is not to say that all of those businesses <laughs> are unviable. But I think the, the, the position from the Republicans, and as you know, it's not exactly my major party of affiliation, but the position from the Republicans is if you get more people coming into the country who are disproportionately on welfare, your chances of getting rid of the welfare state go down significantly. That, that is true. I mean, if your reason for cracking down on immigration is to limit Democratic voter turnout, and you know, I, I you know, I can see the rationale there, right? We don't want more Democrats coming in, right? Because that's the the immigrants that are coming in today are probably disproportionately uh, likely uh, to vote Democrat, uh, and so if if it's if 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 it's if it's about you know a political aspect. Uh, that's a different argument. But the way the Republicans really need to change the debate is we need to turn off the welfare magnet. You know, that's what will stop the bad immigrants from coming in, but won't 
stop the good ones from coming. But believe me, if Donald Trump could actually accomplish, let's assume that we can build the wall and make Mexico pay for it, which you know <laughs> is ridiculous. But let's say we could, and somehow economically we can round up all the illegals and their families and export them. I think the net contribution would be a net negative for the U.S. economy. It wouldn't be a net positive, even if we could do it. And of course, the cost of doing it would be astronomical and Mexico wouldn't pay for it. I mean, I don't even know how Donald Trump thinks Mexico is going to pay for that wall. I mean, the only way he could do it is to put tariffs on Mexican products being imported into the United States. But Mexico doesn't pay those tariffs. The American consumers buying Mexican products pay those tariffs. So there's no way to just send Mexico a bill and then elect and, and, and have them pay it. I, I, you know, like on Saturday Night Live, you know, somebody from Mexico shows up and hands them a big check. <laughs> That's just maybe, not gonna maybe maybe what they're going to do is the next time that the Mexican peso collapses, they won't bail it out to the tune of whatever the wall costs. <laughs> then maybe that's how it's going to work. Now, let me let me close off by asking one question that I absolutely know we're going to get in the YouTube comments and in the inbox from this show. And I think it's a good uh, way of talking about division of labor and differential advantage. OK. YouTube comments, whenever we do a show together, uh, at least half a dozen people to a dozen people ask the following question. Hey, Peter, if gold is so valuable, why are you selling it for dollars via shift gold? I mean, come on. If it's so valuable, you should be wearing it. You should be eating it. You should have your underpants made of it. I mean, why are you possibly trading it away if it's going to be so valuable? Well, I mean, if I owned all the gold that I was selling, right, I, I, would, I wouldn't even need to sell it, right? I'd, I'd be very wealthy. But no, see, we don't sell gold out of inventory. I don't have, I'm not sitting on a pile of gold that I'm trying to unload. Hang on, I'm just going to look right. here. Wait a second. <laughs> Let me just check. Okay. If I had a pile of gold, I mean, I have my own pile, but it's not nearly as big as, you know, the pile that, you know, theoretically we would have to have uh, to fill all the orders that we get at, at Shift Gold. No, I'm a middleman, right? I'd buy wholesale and sell retail. So I'm encouraging people to buy gold and I'm helping them buy it from other people who I believe are foolish enough to sell it. But I'm not selling my gold. I'm still buying gold for myself. You know, I'm still taking some of the money I earn and increasing my ownership in gold and gold stocks and silver and things like that. But the reason that I when I sell gold, the reason that I sell it for dollars is a well, that's what my clients have. Right. And I want to help them replace their paper dollars with real money, real gold. But then most of the money that I get, I've got to pay my rent. Uh, the landlord wants dollars. I got to pay uh, my my salaries to my workers. You know, they need dollars because their landlords want dollars or the bank wants dollars on their mortgage or they got to pay their electric bills or they got to go to the grocery store. And of course, I have suppliers to pay. I have my you know, I got the phone bill. I got the FedEx bill. We've got a lot of costs. But once I subtract all my costs from all my revenues to the extent that I have some profit left over. Yes, I choose to invest some of my product my profit in buying some gold for myself too, right? But to say that I'm just, you know, telling people to buy gold because I'm, I want to get rid of mine. I haven't sold an ounce of gold. I have more gold today than I had 10 years ago. Even though we've been selling all this gold, I'm not selling my gold. I'm still buying gold, you know, just like I'm advising other people to do. Buy gold, buy silver. I'm buying gold stocks. And yes, over the last few years, Gold has gone down. Gold mining stocks have gone way down. And, and so I would have been better off personally, and certainly people would have been better off personally not having bought any a few years ago and buying it all right now. 
But, you know, that's easy with the benefit of hindsight. We didn't have the benefit of hindsight two or three years ago to know that we would have this bigger correction. But we're fortunate enough to be able to take advantage of the correction because I've never advised anybody to go all in. Hey, put 100 percent of your money up, five or 10 percent. And of course, as the price of gold goes down, well, now it's if you had five to 10 percent of your money in gold three years ago, well, now the price is down. You don't have five to 10 percent anymore. So buy more, you know, take advantage of the fact that gold has gone down and, you know, take more of your earnings and more of your wealth. And you know, it's, it's an opportunity because I don't think it's going to stay down. And I think the fact that gold went down before it ultimately takes off is just going to get a lot more people, allow a lot more people to get on board who didn't have any gold at all to buy some. And it's going to allow some people who already bought some gold and silver to buy some more. Well, and of course, you don't have to sell your house to drive up the value of your house. You just have to make your neighborhood more desirable. So the fact that you're stimulating demand for gold helps your gold holdings as it helps the gold holdings of your clients and well, so on. I, you know, don't overestimate my ability to, to influence the market. The people buying gold from me it's such a small percentage. I mean, what really sets the price of gold are the speculators in the futures markets. I mean, they're trading so much gold. Of course, they're trading non-existent gold, right? You have people who don't even have gold selling, selling it to people who have no intention of actually buying it. But all of that activity dwarfs what's happening in the physical market, but the price is being really set in the paper market. So I don't think anything I've ever said or done has, has influenced gold by even 10 cents on a given day. <laughs> So I'm not I'm not trying to talk it up. Right. I'm not trying to tout it. So, you know, no. But I want people to be prepared. I, I believe that gold's going to go way up regardless of what I say. It, even if I never existed, if my precious metals company never existed, uh, gold's going to do what it's going to do. I'm going to have no effect on the gold market. But I think I'm going to have an effect on people who own gold who might otherwise not have owned it. But for the fact that they heard me and, and, and I got them to do some research and to do some understanding. And they came to the same conclusion as me that they should own gold and they do and they buy it before the price goes way up. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Always a really great chat. Uh, why don't you just hit my listeners with your websites in case they want to pursue your thoughts uh, and uh, advice further? Well, you can see for, for precious metals, it's shiftgold.com. For people who want to get into stocks around the world, you want to invest in countries that are in better shape economically, they have lower taxes, fewer regulations, sounder monetary policies, countries like Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, you know, Hong Kong, there are places that we're investing. If you're interested in owning stocks and bonds there, also gold stocks, you can go to Euro Pacific Capital's website. It's Europac, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com. Europac.com. If you're a Canadian and listening, you know, there's Europac.ca, my Canadian broker dealer. And if you're anywhere else in the world, it's my bank, Euro Pacific Bank, EuropacBank.com. We provide a, a whole range of investment services, including the world's first and only gold and silver backed debit cards, which allow you to spend gold and silver if you want to, uh, the way you would spend euros or pounds or dollars. Uh, so we have that program offered at Euro Pacific Bank. And again, you know, I'm not doing my radio show anymore, but shiftradio.com is hosting my podcasts. I do those a couple times a week uh, when I can. I do my video blogs on my on my YouTube channel. So you can certainly follow me, Shift Report on YouTube. You can go on my Facebook page. Uh, you know, I remember you're doing something because I remember a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I didn't have I had a lot more YouTube uh, subscribers than you do, Stefan. And you just blew by me at some point. I mean, I used to have twice as many people subscribing to my YouTube channel. Now I think you got twice as many people subscribing to yours as subscribe to mine. So you you've just, done a you good job. To, uh, <laughs> you just need to do more shows topless. Uh, I think that's <laughs> that's the key. 
Uh, it's just putting all <laughs> yeah. your all your pride to one side and uh, and shaking it all out. Well, thanks again. Always oh, great to chat with you, Peter. We'll do it again soon, and we'll put all the links if you want to follow Peter's stuff below. Highly recommended. So thanks, Emil. All right. Thanks a lot, Stefan. Take care.